Welcome to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. If you haven't subscribed, please do so via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean. And now, over to Dr. Mancharamani. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this 11th episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, I'll be sharing the audio portion of my webinar interview with Apollo Robbins. Apollo is known as the gentleman thief and is a master of focus management. He's been the subject of numerous studies on how sleights of hand can play into and take advantage of some of our cognitive biases. And so Apollo is someone I got to know years ago when I witnessed him in action. I was at a conference and I saw this unusual man walking into a crowded ballroom while we were all eating dinner and randomly uh, accosting different individuals at tables, those walking, including the waiters and waitresses. And eventually he made himself up to stage where he was introduced as Apollo Robbins, gentleman thief. So let's just turn to my interview. Okay. Well, thanks everyone for taking the time to join uh, this Think for Yourself webinar. Uh, I am thrilled to have with me today Apollo Robbins, someone I've gotten to know over the last, I guess it's been almost eight or nine years uh, since I first met him. And I think we're all really in for quite a treat here as Apollo shares with us some of his uh, some of his tactics, perhaps, or <laughs> some of his uh, his know-how, sort of pulling the curtain back and sharing tricks of the trade uh, on some of his uh, misdirection and focus management techniques. So before we turn to Apollo um, and my conversation with him, uh, I want to just remind everyone uh, that I am here to suggest you buy this book. <laughs> no, uh, actually, look, my book is coming out uh, in about two, a little over two weeks time. It's called Think for Yourself. Uh, it's available for pre-order on Amazon. If you find any value in these webinars, I hope you take the time to, to purchase the book, to pre-order it. It is valuable and helpful to me to have you pre-order it. Uh, so any help and support would be much appreciated. Um, Next week, uh, next week, I'm thrilled to say our guest will be Reince Pribus, uh, who used to be uh, President Trump's chief of staff. He was one of Time 100's uh, most powerful people or most influential people in the world. Uh, twice he was listed in that capacity. Uh, Reince was also um, the chairman of the Republican National Committee. And so he is among the most plugged in individuals when it comes to national politics. Um, and so uh, unfortunately you have to pick a side, Republican or Democrat, but I do think he's a logical, thoughtful individual who I am just thrilled to have a conversation with. So next week, the webinar will be with Mr. Priebus. And as a reminder, we have replays available. Uh, the replays for Jim Grant, uh, that was, uh, that's available as well as the replay with my conversation with Kishore Mabubani. Uh, with Tom Petrie, um, with General Lori Robinson, and then of course uh, the original uh, first webinar that I hosted was my conversation with Dr. Ali Khan, uh, author of The Next Pandemic. Uh, when I just re-listened to his comments uh, and they seem as relevant today as they were then. Uh, last tidbit before we, uh, we turn to Apollo. I have taken the time to take the audio portion of all of these webinars and put them into a podcast format. So there is a Think for Yourself podcast. Some of you have asked, said, look, I'm driving, I'm working out, I'd love to be able to listen to the commentary. Uh, can you send it to me? Uh, and so I've put them all on and made them publicly available under the Think for Yourself podcast. So 
with that said, I think it's now time to turn to Apollo. Uh, Apollo is uh, someone known as the Gentleman Thief. Uh, and one of the projects that he's been working on, uh, which I think is really interesting, and, and we're going to get into it, um, it's, uh, it's something called the Illusion of Knowledge. And so I'm going to begin with a short trailer for this project of his. Uh, bear with us if for some reason your video isn't working, it is literally uh, 65, I think it's 75 seconds. So uh, apologies if you don't have a strong internet connection that it may uh, not be perfect, but it should be uh, solid and it should work for most of us. So I will go ahead and share that now uh, as the intro to Apollo Robbins. All right, let's go back here and start. This game is going to require you to focus. The enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge. A lot of my work is about building false realities, moving from the way people collect information in the world to how they construct a belief about what they see. So I hope to explore that through magic and con games and deception, using those to highlight how we make false assumptions and realizing that blind spots aren't just what we look at. It's also sometimes the stories that we tell ourselves. What's important here is to realize that deception is not something that I do. It's something that happens inside your head. Sometimes when we pull back the curtain and let you see backstage, you're not really seeing the whole backstage. There's another curtain. But in order to be more perceptive and have a better understanding of reality, we have to question the things that we think we already know. I'm talking about con games, magic tricks, and deception. What relevance does that have to learn? Everything. Okay, so with that, let me introduce Apollo Robbins. Apollo, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me, Bikram. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I am so excited to have this conversation with you because uh, for those that don't know, I met Apollo as not quite a victim of his, uh, but I was sitting in the audience at a conference, uh, at a conference I was speaking at, this is probably eight or nine years ago, um, and I noticed this individual come in through the corner of my eye and just sort of wander through the audience casually, saying hello to people randomly. And eventually I saw him up on stage and he was introduced as Apollo Robbins, Gentleman Thief. He then went ahead and said that he had found some items and he pulled out a watch uh, that he picked up off of one unsuspecting victim when he walked in. He handed someone else their wallet back and it was absolutely stunning. Um, so, uh, again, Apollo, thanks. That, that's been a fun uh, way to get to know you over the years, and uh, I've been thrilled with our conversations and uh, fascinated by your work. So, it's my pleasure. It's an unusual way to meet someone if you're going to have a trusting relationship, I think. <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, so, for those that don't know, uh, I'm not really going to take a lot of time to introduce Apollo, but I'll just share with you uh, one of his more audacious uh, stories, uh, which was... Apollo, tell us what happened when you ran into President Carter's uh, secret <laughs> service detail. Uh, maybe that would be an interesting story to start with. Sure. Um, 
So I, I used to work as a, similar to a magician in Las Vegas, I was part of a show there. And my role was to steal from people, to pickpocket them, to kind of wake them up as they came off the Las Vegas Strip and they're going into a high-end type of show. And uh, during this, this is usually a high-end kind of high-profile dinner. And then one night, uh, our boss pulls everybody aside in the show and says, uh, Paolo, um, the Secret Service are coming in, the president is coming in, uh, it's an ex-president, Jimmy Carter, but they don't want you to shake his hand because they're worried it might make it in the news if you pickpocket uh, the president in front of them. Um, I, I had no criminal background, but it just was something that he, uh, it was an interesting experience because then uh, my boss pulls me aside and said, but they didn't say anything about the Secret Service, so if you want to, I'll pull you out of the show tonight if you want to try to steal from them. And then that night, I went around to the different Secret Service agents and stole some of their credentials, the keys to the motorcade, the uh, uh, travel itinerary where they're taking Carter to and some other things. Oh, that's fun. That's fun. And they didn't mind where they were agitated. What, what was the sort of reaction? I'm curious. Yeah, it was an elevator, I think. Uh, initially, uh, I mean, egos were always involved in this kind of thing. Uh, they were, there were two stationed at each door as I went around. And the first two that I went up to, I, I kind of used that to get in because they behaved differently because they had training. Um, so they manage occupied space in a very interesting way that was new to me. So I had to kind of adapt what they thought I was going to do. They already knew that I stole things, so they were on the lookout. And uh, I stole from the first guy, and he didn't want to be the only one. So he started calling ahead for me to go steal from the other stations. And at the end, Carter said, aren't you guys supposed to be protecting me? And that kind of lightened the load for everybody. There you go. That's great. Well, thanks for sharing that story. I mean, some of the other stuff that, I, again, actually, for those that don't know, within my book, um, there's a uh, there's probably six or seven pages that talk about uh, Apollo and some of his tactics uh, and some of the insights I've picked up. But you know, some of the other fun stories that are in there is, uh, you know, he stole money from NBA star Charles Barkley. Uh, you know, took a watch off of Bear Stearns chairman Ace Greenberg's wrist, etc., cetera, um, etc. Cetera. But so, Paula, one thing that I want to start with is, how did you get into this? I mean, this is a fascinating profession that you found yourself in. Um, and uh, how, how did you come up? Where did you get these ideas, uh, et cetera? Uh, it's still a learning process. Um, it's not your traditional path, but I think part of that is uh, the ability to kind of surf through the opportunities. As things move along, I evolved with that. Um, when I was young, I was exposed to some things. My dad had married a widow. And she had two sons that were kind of delinquent. They were involved with some crime. And it was interesting because my dad was a very conservative minister. So growing up in that kind of dichotomy in that household was really interesting. And I saw my brother steal things. Uh, and in the beginning, it was like pickpocketing, stealing from bags or cutting pockets. But later on, they moved into uh, trafficking, drug trafficking, gun trafficking. So it was more serious. And I was very interested in the idea of the gray, that things aren't just black and white, that... Um, and I think that that's what it did. It broadened up my mindset. And I became very curious about why we're fooled and why we miss things. And uh, I started doing sleight of hand as a way to kind of get in with my brothers to kind of get their respect. And then I mixed the pickpocketing in with it. And that became kind of a hybrid that was novel in the magic world. And uh, then I was invited to move to Vegas and be part of a show. Fascinating. And but you took a more intellectual approach to it, right? I mean, you're, you're among the more thoughtful uh, individuals when it comes to the idea of managing focus, right? So one of the themes that you and I have talked about is sort of when people pay attention, they actually are ignoring as well, right? So focus is, a, is one side of the coin, uh, ignoring is the other. And so if you're narrowly focused, you're broadly ignoring. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And so where did the intellectual curiosity come from? Was that just a fascination or what brought it about? I think from a lot of things. I, another thing, I, also as a kid, I w was disabled. I had braces on my legs, kind of like Forrest Gump. So it meant that it was sidelined a lot. And I uh, was very interested in watching people and why they did what they did. So later on when it became this, and also I was diagnosed along the way with uh, adult compensatory skills of ADHD. That means I applied ADHD in an unusual way. So I think it allowed me to see relationships between things, things that I saw in dance or animation or martial arts influenced how I stole from people. So when I was performing in Vegas, it kind of became like a lab to me. I was experimenting with people from different cultures, people from different backgrounds, how their attention worked, uh, how the deficit in my attention informed me about exploiting their attention. And when that Secret Service incident happened, I was approached by the Secret Service to come talk to them. And then some neuroscientists asked me, do you have any theories that we could test in the lab? And that was really the big change was when I found out that I could have scientific evidence to back up a theory, I became very curious about the whole idea and how this applied to broader areas outside of performance. Sure, sure. Wow, fascinating. Uh, so I want to come back to the Jimmy Carter thing, because one thing um, that I remember in one of our prior conversations you mentioned is actually when people are nervous around you and they're expecting you to take from them, they're sort of their guard is up that actually makes it easier, right? Mm -hmm. Because their, their focus is even more intense on what you touch or what, et cetera, thereby leaving the rest of the, describe that a little bit for folks that are listening in here. The, I think in your book, you talk a lot about the inattentional blindness, uh, Dan Simon's uh, experiments in that space. The, I, I like to refer to it as task blindness. If someone has a task, they're often blinded by that. It, uh, occupied mind is missing the present. I think there's a, an improv coach you should say. And, if you can give them a task, or if they already have a task, that comes at the expense of something else. Uh, because our attention is a lot like mental dollars. So if they're gonna spend it here, it's at the cost of something else. Now, sometimes I can allow them to navigate that story themselves and choose a story. And if they're fully occupied, that's good enough, it's sticky. But other times I, like in the situation you just mentioned, if I'm controlling the narrative and they're expecting, oh, you're gonna steal from me. As long as I know what their expectations are in the framework for their story, I can play outside that spotlight of their attention. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Uh, well, I do find it fascinating, the whole dynamic of sort of managing attention. Uh, the implications of this are broader, far broader than just obviously entertainment uh, and what have you. I know you've done some training and some, uh, you've been hired by corporations and others to sort of help people learn to manage their focus. Now, sure, we're going to get questions. And by the way, those that are listening, feel free to put in your questions through the Q&A tab, and I will get to them uh, after the, the initial set of questions I have. But, uh, and then, Paul, you don't need to worry about them. I'll follow the Q&A and, and, and serve them up uh, verbally to you. Uh, Great, thank you. So tell me, what are companies worried about? What do they seek from you? Uh, you know, the space now has really moved into dealing with uncertainty. Uh, and I think that to me, that's a fascinating space because the very nature of a con game is exploiting someone's overconfidence about a subject. So inside of a context, people think, hey, I'm an expert about this. I know this. But in designing a con or a heist, I'm often trying to exploit the expectation of what they think they know. And if I can find the gap before what they thought they know and what is expired, then I can really, and that becomes very interesting in a lot of different disciplines. If if it's in a fintech, it's a, a constantly evolving, very tumultuous environment. So then the truce that you had yesterday might have expired today. And how do we make decisions when we think about black swans? So a lot of times I'll design some kind of con game that lets people know that they don't know. 
And I try to do that in a way that um, is less intellectual because we tend to think of uh, things as, I know this cognitive bias is this, but they don't recognize the animal when they see it in real life. Sure, sure. So I know you advised uh, Warner Brothers on the movie Focus, which is, by the way, one of my favorite movies. I love it. I think it's a fun one. Uh, and I realize there's probably a whole bunch of inaccuracies in it in terms of what works and what doesn't. Um, but how did that come about? Sort of curious about, A, how you got engaged on that, that sort of uh, project, but then B, what were you able to actually teach Will Smith how to pickpocket or was it just sort of done for camera, but he didn't really acquire the skill uh, or same thing with Margot Robbie? Uh, both of them had different paths. Um, first, John and Glenn, uh, Glenn Picara were the ones that approached me. They were the writers on the piece, but they also were the directors and the producers for it too. And they had this idea of, they'd done a movie called uh, Crazy Stupid Love. Uh, and they were very interested in this kind of plot twist. And they said, what criminal element have we not explored on film? So there's an idea of a criminal culture called whiz mobs. So we decided to use that as the focus for focus. And when they selected uh, Will Smith and he adopted for the role, um, I got to spend a lot of time with him introducing him to people from that world. So I kind of took him on a convict petting zoo, so to speak, of introducing to different people that might have played in those spaces that his character would play in. And he was very interested in the psychology and how it would feel and how do you make people feel and how do you rationalize the victimization of other people for his character. And so I taught him more in that lane, the psychology. Margot was very interested in the skills themselves, the technique and the physical element. So we did a lot of that in that teaching. And she picked up the skills very well. She was pickpocketing people on set. Is that right? So these are teachable skills. They can be. It depends on the person's aptitude for uh, following somebody else's train of thought. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, describe another project, something fun you've done in the corporate world. I mean, uh, for better or worse, most of the folks on this call, I suspect, are businessy types, uh, mm -hmm. maybe government types, possibly some investment types. Uh, but, you know, what's relevant in your learnings for them? I think um, there's a really interesting idea. Um, I'll show you something silly that you can do. This is just something really small. Um, have I shown you this idea? I don't know. We've had side conversations. Have I shown you this thing with my ring? Go ahead. Um, so if you think about confirmation bias, the majority of time confirmation bias works for our benefit. But we often think of it as bad because it's a bias, right? But the very nature of it is that we, when we see what we want to see, we become less curious, right? But if we lose something, we're very curious. But when we are winning, we're less curious. So you can kind of do this as a demonstration. So here, let's say if I put this out of... Uh, now, where do you think the ring is in my, which hand is it in, left or right? Let's go left. Uh, so this one over here, just because the camera flips sure. it. Fine. Yeah. Sure. All right, so you got it. Did you peek it as yeah. you were doing it, or how did you get it? Random. Okay, you try it again. <laughs> left. This left over here. Okay, now what are you looking for? You Is it just guessing, or you have a system? I'm guessing. Okay, so right now that's 50-50. I need you to miss to prove my point. Hold on one second. I'll try it again. All right, we'll go right. Right. Okay, so I, I kind of influenced you by saying I need you to miss to prove my point. Uh, do you think that influenced you or do you want to switch back to left? No, we'll stick with right. Okay, so that was one time and you got it again. So, okay. uh, <laughs> so that's a pretty good success for you. It's 50-50 odds, right? But you still got it every time. So in a very small way, this is something that people can do at home to make this point. Why is this a, a demonstration of confirmation bias, do you think? Because now I think I know what I'm doing. Right, and if you didn't project a narrative. Some people say, well, you know, 
I used to play poker with my grandma. I'm really good at telling stories. I'm really good at reading people. I work in sales. I do this. And they very, because they win, they never question the other hands and question why they're winning, that there's just rings the whole time. But the ability to show somebody what they want to see is really important because as long as they're winning, they're not questioning why they're winning usually. And to me, that's a very fascinating space. So I do that in bigger ways of creating situations of what people might think of, hey, the seminar begins on a Tuesday at 9 a.m. and it ends at 5. So how can you create situations that they get to feel what it's like to make a bad decision? Yeah. Fascinating. Uh, well, I already felt like I was doing a good job and now I know I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> that humility is so important, I think, because our, we're, we're taught as a culture that we need to be certain. I think that humble confidence is a really important part. Sure, sure. Uh, okay. So, Paul, one of the things that I find fascinating about your way of thinking is you tend to sort of empathize might not be the right word, but sort of adopt a perspective other than your own. Mm -hmm. and that becomes key. So that's actually one of the key points I try to emphasize in this book and sort of my thinking process is multiple perspectives is critical yeah. that you will fool yourself into believing something if you run around with one perspective and one perspective only. Mm -hmm. How does that come into your work? You can think of it like a movie when you're shooting from three cameras, right? If you only have one camera angle, you're very limited. You're like peeking through a keyhole at a world. And when I was a kid, I saw that movie, Pete the Dragon, where they have to throw a net over an invisible dragon. And the kids could see it, but the adults couldn't. But if they threw a net, they can kind of see the shape of it. To me, that's a lot of times what I imagine. You need multiple people to have multiple perspectives from different expertise to see what the truth is. Because the truth from angles, any single perspective is very limiting. But to have a holistic idea of context and truth, you need to be able to shift between cameras and have multiple cameras viewing the same situation. So the situation, context, and multiple perspectives to me the key point is that most people, when they're witnessing a deception, they believe, I'm going to find this little thing that's missing, this anomaly. But a lot of times the anomaly is not available to us. We have to be able to imagine what we're not seeing. Yeah. And so imagination, creativity, obviously critical. How do you develop that? What, what do you do to sort of foster that? Do you read certain things? Do you watch certain things? Do you do certain things? How do you develop that creativity and imagination? It's, I think the, it's interesting because imagination is on both sides. If I'm trying to deceive you, it's kind of like imagination arms race. I have to be able to imagine scenarios that you wouldn't go to. I have the theories of here's where you would, here's where you're likely to guess. To go on the other side to increase your knowledge, you have to be able to have kind of a tactical sense of curiosity. Besides traditional curiosity, you have to be more tenacious to um, not stop with the first answer you have, to be able to ask the question of this looks like this why is it not and that's really hard because when we see something that we've seen before it tends to be routine we have an automatic way to respond to it but uh it's so easy for us to form patterns so the ability to question the patterns and the routines we have then the harder question becomes when do we question those yeah yeah, yeah. any particularly influential writing on you is there anything you've read that you would recommend that says, wow, this really had a huge impact on the way I think about the world or the way I've managed to see perceptions differently? Uh, there's, I mean, there's lots of content. Uh, I like um, Tetlock's book on super forecasting. I like some of his ideas to treat a belief as a hypothesis to be tested, not a uh, treasure to be protected. I think that's a really cool idea to be able to do. Uh, your book, obviously, I, I, from the cursory skim of what I see and the context of person went to the section you wrote about me, but 
as I'm looking through it, so there's a lot of parallels to what I'm interested in how I look at things. Um, Leonard Milanow's book, Elastic Thinking. Yep. I think it's so important, the ability to realize that uh, who wins now is the ability to adapt with a changing environment and how creative can you be to that change and the ability to not silo ourselves in the different expertise, but to be able to see through the gaps. And I mean, my goal whenever I'm doing a live presentation is to silo people, to limit their imagination, to make them not curious. So how can you try to fight that and be curious and ask questions that nobody else is asking? Yep, yep. No, look, I think uh, you are preaching to the choir. <laughs> yeah. I actually agree with virtually everything you're saying in terms of how the other side of it being people living in silos and therefore being unable to see uh, and sort of breaking silos to help them immunize perhaps themselves yeah. against uh, this, uh, th these gaps in knowledge. Um, so Apollo, tell us uh, the most surprising thing you've learned in the process of studying human behavior. Is there anything that you didn't expect that you were like, wow, here's something that's really fascinating. It may disagree with what your expectations were. It may have disagreed with even the academic thinking or the literature, but real life practical experience of you interacting with individuals, you found something different. Um, this is bold to say, but I'm just thinking off the fly, probably the overall concept that truth doesn't matter. Um, story matters, but for the average individual, um, the ability for them to process truth, it's most people think of the self as one person, but I think of it like uh, multiple departments inside of a, a company. Yeah. If somebody hears the truth, they have to be able to correlate that with all their other selves. So they might say, well, I believe this. But when they walk away five minutes later, they might compare it with other departments in themselves. So it's not one person making a decision when we think of one person. Yeah. So the ability to, what that is, is like cognitive dissonance. And that is such a fascinating place to me, the idea of um, multiple departments inside of a person that don't correlate. So even if they see the facts, if I tell them a story that's juicier than the facts, they tend to magnet to that. So it's really hard for people to let go of that. And I intellectually knew this, but more and more when you do it, it doesn't matter the level of expertise. Everybody is vulnerable to this. It's not just the most gullible. Every time I'm doing a show, people say, how do you find the most gullible person in the room? And I said, they're breathing. You know, it's, it's that common person that, how do you find a story that will change their priorities that's seductive enough for them to latch onto it? Sure. So Paul, I'm going to drizzle in some of the questions that we're getting here when they're relevant to what we're talking about even now. So uh, there's a question here that says, uh, has anyone ever picked Apollo's pocket? And if so, what did he learn from that experience? So if you know, you're a breathing human being, uh, you're equally subject to some of these um, uh, breakdowns of knowledge or thinking or focus or et cetera. Uh, has that ever happened? And, and what did yep. you learn from it? Yeah, um, just a quote from a, a friend of mine who was an old comman, Pop Hayden. He said that there are two types of people in the world. There are marks and suckers. The difference between the two is that suckers have to lose something to find out that they're a mark. And I prefer to just know that I'm a mark right off the bat. Uh, and I think that, I mean, one, because of what I do, everybody tries to target me, trying to steal a pocket scarf or trying to steal my phone when I sit on a table. So that happens to me probably more than most. Um, and I think it's more of a value that I allow that. So that's just on the fun side. On the theft side, yes, I've been stolen from. And a lot of times it's usually me setting myself up to that. I used to go with my wife. We had a company that would go try to meet different types of thieves. And we would set ourselves up to be stolen from so that we could get to know them and meet them. Interesting. Interesting. It's funny. One of the things that I remember highlighting uh, 
I think I mentioned this in the book, was uh, one of the most um, fertile grounds for pickpockets are areas where there is a sign that says, beware of pickpockets, right? Because then suddenly when someone walks in, they're like touching their, okay, I got my wallet, I got, they're telegraphing, they're giving up their full mapping of all their valuables, if you will. So that gives the intel, right? It gives where things are, but there's, now that that's actually a little bit more expired because now phones are such a popular thing. So if I see earbuds, I now know you have a phone, so I don't need that as much. So if I see where your phone is, because you're going to have it out pretty soon, I, I can find it pretty quick to be able to steal it. Probably more the ripe spots are where somebody really has an implicit narrative. So somebody's crossing the street at a stoplight and there's a lot of traffic. There's a very narrow window for them to get across that street. So that's a good opportunity that they're now on autopilot to get across the street. And that's what you're smelling for is you're looking at when is somebody on autopilot? How deep are they entrenched in that conversation that they've tuned out their external world? Got it. Got it. I was going to, one of the other questions I had here was when are people most vulnerable and how are, and, and so, you know, aside from being mindful of this and not becoming overly focused, what can we do to sort of, you know, immunize or protect ourselves against this, right? I mean, how do we not be blinded by focus? I think that that is actually the biggest discovery is not that you can stop yourself. And it's kind of a meta version of answering your question, but it's knowing and recognizing that you can't. Um, in a specific moment, you can, but even the idea of critical thinking, questioning the thing that is in front of you requires attention. So you can't always be hyper attentive. So understanding that there's always going to be shadows, things that you miss, things that you ignore because you didn't prioritize them. That's the insight. And not the, uh, how do you stop it? Because as humans, we will always miss things. But why did you miss things? Is it because something you did, you had, uh, you collected something incorrectly or you reasoned wrong? Or is it because you had misinformation or deception? Knowing that and being able to sort why you miss things and how quickly you can adapt to that, I think is really important. Yeah. One thing, just a second ago, because you said, what surprised me? This is, I used to try to steal glasses off someone's face. And that's a fascinating thing to try to do because uh, that's a good visceral example of what I was saying with uh, the amount with focus. When you steal someone's glasses, it changes how they perceive their reality, right? They, their vision would change. You'd be absolutely sure that you couldn't do it. When I first started, I would steal sometimes sunglasses in a very sunny day. And you would, you would assume intuitively people will notice that. Yeah, but if yeah. the narrative is strong enough, they won't. Um, if they're really chasing, it's like a dog chasing after a car. If they're really chasing you and they think they've almost caught you you can change their senses and they really won't realize that it's changed. Stunning. That's fascinating. So they literally wouldn't know that their eyes are squinting and still wouldn't know the glasses yeah. are going or their You have to give them something more important to think about. But it's priority over it. That's what I mean by that truth. The priority is more important. What, what story are they on? Which track line are they on? Yep. yep. Fascinating. So let me, uh, let me turn to a question that um, I think is interesting and may tie to what you're just saying here is, you know, what con games and deception you see as being used right now in both geopolitics or U.S. domestic politics? Am I allowed to cuss? Yeah, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> Bullshit is the key. Um, and I don't mean that by the term. I mean that there was a paper, I, where was it out of uh, Stanford called On Bullshit? Yeah. And it was the look at um, flooding noise to signal ratio with truth versus facts. Um, so if I flood a channel with uh, falsehoods. I don't normally when you lie, you have a correlation of truth and falsehood, and I have to hide you from getting the truth. But now if I flood uh, the channel uh, that you're listening to with falsehoods, uh, then it really doesn't matter. You can't find it. And that, that's a fascinating thing right now. The noises. And I'm not saying it's intentional necessarily. I'm saying that 
there's, it's so hard to find relevant truth to the content. Cause you could say, I know this is a fact. It's like, yeah, that was a fact yesterday. Or I know this is a fact. Yes, it is a fact, but who wants you to have it? And why do you have it? There's so many things that influence story now that really are in the space of like the old pitchman uh, that they used to use in jam auctions and some of these kind of con games to really pull you in. But it was a noise to signal ratio that creates uh, dazzle or confusion. Yep. Yep. Well, that definitely seems like what's happening in the world today. Yeah. At least based it, on creates, it creates uncertainty. It's ambiguity increasing deceptions. And it, we've always been misleading deceptions. I want you to think this. Now we're in the chaos space of ambiguity increasing. Uh, where how do we make sense? It could mean this, it could mean this. It's really a lot of equivocation. Okay, so this is a fascinating today. I mean, I, I'm sure you find this. There's a question that came in here. It says, uh, Apollo, did you talk at a conference at the Royal Palms Phoenix on March, whatever, 2014? If so, you took my watch and belt. <laughs> if, if those things were stolen and it was either me or an old guy named Bob Arno, and he has a Swedish accent. So we're the only two that do those two things. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so could be. Uh, that was a while back, so I don't know, but that could be very much me. Uh, there's other more practical questions in here in the queue, which is, uh, where should I put my wallet? Is it safer in my front pocket or back pocket? At home, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's, but when you're out, um, when you're out, the inside jacket pocket actually requires a pickpocket to make contact with you, eye contact. Um, the, but any other pocket they could steal from without you seeing. But your inside jacket pocket, they, there used to be a term called kissing the dog, that they would have to look at you to steal it. Um, but more relevant, if you're traveling and you're in a questionable neighborhood and you have some things you're really worried about losing, um, getting something like these like plastic cups or McDonald's cup and just put the valuables in there and make it like an impromptu safe. So now it's hiding in plain sight. Even if they were to rob you and find some kind of token amount, they wouldn't check the trash. So that's a more relevant tip in those kind of travel problems. There you go. I don't know if the person was actually seeking that, but that's great. <laughs> uh, all right. Any thoughts on norms engineering where an untruth is repeated so many times that it becomes believable? Um, it sounds a little bit like the noise question, uh, but you know, let's get your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's back to that arms race of imagination piece. Um, a lot of time, it's really important for the next generations, I think. Um, now, I, I, the, con the intention of that question, I think, was a little bit more specific, but if you think about like a different space in tech of AI, we're going to have AI solve problems for us, and we're going to outsource that to them. Um, Alpha North Whitehead, I think, was the one that said that civilization advances by the number of tasks we can automate without thinking. That becomes a really slippery slope. Uh, while it's benefited to automate things, if they become a crutch, we're only thinking for our generation. What happens two generations away where we've developed norms where they ask a box, what should we do? If we don't have redundancies to question why the box arrived at that, that becomes a new norm two generations away. So looking down the timeline, I think, I understand contextually you're talking about the norms right now, but I think we really got to think about the timeline of how we establish norms for future generations. Yeah, I mean, I look, I agree with that, Paul. I tend to think that as we turn off our ability to think that we, uh, that it atrophies, uh, right? We lose the ability to actually think critically or um, even proactively about certain things that get automated away. And so yep. uh, I totally agree with that. Um, so what about um, your thinking about navigating uncertainty? So look, here we are in this COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, uncertainty reigns across all the worlds that we face. 
economically, politically, et cetera, you're someone who thinks about uncertainty and how to exploit it, right? Uh, and sort of play in those gaps. Tell us how you're thinking about it right now for your world. Well, it's an interesting space. I mean, I specifically, me personally, I am a speaker for conferences. I speak at, as a keynote speaker, general sessions. I, I did. But now these conferences are going more virtual, right? Um, and one of the things that was highlighted a lot of times is people want me to come in and pickpocket someone. So I imagine even after conferences, who are going to be the people that hire someone to come and touch other people? I, so that's a, a level of uncertainty, right? That what is my future occupation going to be? And I really think that it is in this, for me, it's the ability to imagine what relevance do I have to other areas and where does my expertise have application? But the ability to fill in blanks though, I think is really in dealing with the uncertainty. Do we fill it in, if we have an answer to something, do we fill it in in pencil or ink? And I think that that's a simple way to think about it. People tend to want to fill in an ink. They want, in times of uncertainty, they want to say, this blank I don't know, let me fill in an ink because it gives them a security, right? But the ability to try to connect those dots or to fill that in with pencil, I think is more important than ever. That you need to be able to hedge it, move with that and make a best guess decision, but then be able to pivot off of that and consider other options. Sort of an adaptability, being agile to change. Being able to pull out the eraser without sacrificing your ego. And that's harder when it goes to a company. And especially when a company facilitates that, they have to really evaluate how they put the weight and the onus on the individuals now, right? For a company to promote abilities, for somebody to be able to question things, to have a department that specializes in, you have to be, identify the lessons learned from best truths, but also the ability to uh, take people that have solved answers before and say, okay, let's think about how we solved those in the past. Can we solve them in different ways and have some time allocated to that? Yeah, yeah, no, look, I agree with that totally. Uh, all right, somewhat random question, but I'll go with it. Uh, how good, bad, or accurate are the cons uh, in the movie Oceans 11, 12, and 13? Well, that's three different movies. Um, <laughs> I think they're remarkable. I think they're very good. Um, a lot of them are, based on the things that I've seen, they pull from different stories that are kind of arcane. One of them, um, you'll remember, there was a nose that was put on a guy to beat facial recognition. Um, and that was based on a friend of mine who uh, was on the blacklist in Las Vegas. And the blacklist is only 34 people. Um, and he used to do that. They used to use prosthetics to uh, throw up elements because his biometrics were inside the system they were looking for. And um, so there are a lot of those that are pulled from different true stories. Um, but I thought they were generally put together pretty well on that film. There you go. All right. <laughs> Good to know. All right. So someone wants to know, can you give us an example of how you use compelling storytelling? Uh, how can this be applied to normal life, business deals, et cetera? Mm -hmm. I think we have to um, look at how we are, we're used to projecting our stories out uh, rather than creating stories that uh, create rabbit holes for people to come into. Um, and then how do we create legends or myths? Um, an example, my old business card used to look like a Black American Express. I remember this. And I really want to create a story for people to have, right? Uh, so. In that, I, when somebody asked for my business card after a conference, I'd say, um, uh, I'd say, could you give me a call? They say, do you have a card? I say, yes, it's in your wallet. And when they reach in their wallet, they find this black MX that uh, was my business card. And that's the first surprise. But what they don't realize is that I've stolen the room key. I skimmed it with a Bluetooth skimmer and I sent that to somebody on my team. And my business card on the back has a magnetic strip that now has all their room key information on it. 
they would pass that to me. I'd load it in their pocket. So after they find this in their wallet, I'd say, I take it up to your room. It's going to unlock your hotel room. Sleep well. And in their mind, they're imagining ninjas and hackers and all these things. But they go up with a group of people, unlock their hotel room, and it became a story that is now contagious, spiral. And I think that storytelling really requires that kind of uh, projected empathy of what is the story that someone's going to tell? What are they going to find important? And uh, what is the subtext of what it means to more people? Yeah, repeatability, it sounds like. Uh, believability, the, the passion to repeat. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and the ability to shift that narrative context. You may have a story, but how many narratives, how many contexts is it important? Is it the core concepts? Are they applicable here, here, and here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm getting a lot of questions, so let's ask another okay. one. What's the last thing you saw someone do that delighted you, uh, not your family or non-family? Oh, that yeah, because I did go straight to family. Um, <laughs> um, that, that would give me in a blank. Can we circle back to that question? I'll, I'll chew on that in the back burner. While, we're, while we let you circle back and think about that, Apollo, yeah. let, me, uh, let me share a story of yours that you shared with me and maybe you want to mm -hmm. elaborate on it. Um, so you all can imagine how uh, interesting it would be to either uh, spend a lot of time with Apollo or uh, uh, grow up with Apollo as your father. Uh, and so Apollo, maybe tell them the story about your daughter and how she was uh, shown the act of seeing things that were right in front of her, but maybe she hadn't realized were right in front of her. Uh, you can just share that story with everyone. That's kind of a fun one. Um, yeah, that is where I went when you asked that question. Um, so my daughter is three and a half right now. Um, and before that, my wife and I thought it was really important to without questioning her, getting her to question her sanity, be able to get her to question the things around her, what she thought she knew. And that's a really important part of our just life philosophy to ask new questions and question our old answers. And um, we had a hidden floor on our house, a whole level with a staircase and a loft that uh, has been hidden and it's got electromagnetic secret doors. I guess it's not a secret much now that I'm saying it. Um, but she didn't know about it her whole life. And She's been running around this house thinking she knows every inch of it. And our guests stay in that room. So we have to brief them how to get in and out of that space as we do it. Um, and we didn't want her to accidentally discover it. So we want her to discover it in a certain way. So this is something very elaborate that we've been playing before she's even born. But we just revealed it this Christmas Eve. And the way we did it was she reads these little kids' books. They're seven by seven little square books. And I used to be a cartoonist when I was younger. So I illustrated a kids' book for her. And it's called Maya's Secret Room. And I took all of her toys and I used to do strange things for her where when she was a baby, there's a little window in her room. I'd pop in with this big Muppet puppet that was purple named Violet. And it wasn't associated with me. She just thought I was a monster. And at first she was kind of scared. And then she became friends non-verbally with this puppet. And she never saw it with me. So it shows up in this character as in a character in the book. And it starts navigating as she reads through the book to move through the house. And she finds that all of her five favorite toys are missing from the house. And it helps her find the secret room. And then she finds a secret key to unlock the secret room. And this wall opens up and then she goes up these stairs. And to me, that kind of that delight, that moment of seeing her question her whole reality, this whole door and wall opens up and her facing that fear of going up these dark stairs to this place that she hopes the story is true was um, really magical for my wife and I. Yeah, fun. That's really fun. That's a great story. Um, all right, so here's an interesting question. If you were not in this line of work, what would you be doing? 
probably in the line of social psychology. I know it's not that doesn't sound that spicy, but I'm very interested in how uh, people work inside the context of their situations. And I now in this place in my life, I've always been in the space of being the tada, having people applaud for me on stage. And now I'm very interested in how my skills can be relevant to other spaces. And the, the hardest part I find is the the box that people keep you in, right? I'm I'm the gentleman thief. I steal from people. Um, but if I had another occupation, it would probably be that. How can I apply my same way of thinking to other bigger problems? And uh, I don't believe in the divisions that we have as far as left and right. I think that a lot of our divisions are how comfortable people are with uncertainty and the need to have an absolute answer. And I think that happens on both sides. And if I had my brothers and I had another occupation, I would focus my efforts on that. How do we heal that? Sure. No, look, I, I completely agree with what you're saying here. Uh, one of the things that I've always enjoyed about getting to know you, Apollo, is you were never just, in my eyes, the, the, the pickpocket or the thief, et cetera, but you've had an intellectual side to it. You know, sharing with even the National Geographic show, like teaching, there was always sharing and sort of unveiling a little bit, maybe not all, but unveiling, you know, that first curtains, as you say, uh, so people feel like they're getting a behind the scenes uh, sneak peek but there's a little more. So there's obviously a side of you that, that sort of wants to educate and then figure things out and share, uh, which I think is, is, is fabulous. Um, all right, so here's a question. Have you ever gone up against a clothing brand called Pickpocket Proof Pants? Um, I haven't gone up against them. I've seen them, obviously. It shows up all the time for me. Uh, but I, I haven't seen actually what the pros and cons of their pants are. Um, you know, it's really surprising. Pickpocketing is, uh, has now really become outdated in some way. I mean, it's it's ripe more than ever because people are more and more blinded by their cell phones or more and more vulnerable than they ever were. Um, but there's so many other ways to get people's information. It's constantly transmitting from your phone with your foot technology. There's lots of different ways of getting it. Um, but the uh, I think that they, I did work for a company for a while called Walk It Wallet, and they have biometric wallets with safes and fingerprints and things. So I have played in that travel safety kind of personal space. Um, but for the pants, the, the quandary would be, can you cut the pockets? And they might have solved that. Um, if it's zippers, how do you stop the zipper from unzipping? Does it have a false piece to pull off? Um, but any pocket on a pair of pants is usually vulnerable. Um, so it's then looking at understanding they're not just going to try to go through the opening. They're going to try to go around it or cut it. But still, they would have to know that there's something of value in there to prioritize that. Yeah, yeah, OK. <laughs> um, all right, so you mentioned you take advantage of people's focus, but how do you change focus when someone like yourself is so confident and takes control of a room? Well, in that, look at the context of that. That's a presentation, right? So you're stepping into my game, and that's a hard thing, right? If you're just trying to win in that game, it's harder because I've had more experience with it than you have just stepping into it. So first is knowing that, that you are upside down because the considerations that you're going to try to move to, A, B, or C, I've probably dealt with that lots of times. Um, so there's a good chance that you'd probably be fooled. Now, if you're looking at that outside of just doing with it, but a con man in another environment, then it's the ability to be able to step back on the situation. And I know I mentioned this idea of imagine alternate narratives, but it's really hard for us when we say, I think that they're helping me because of this. I think that they're do they would, um, uh, they, they would never do this. Uh, for example, um, the ability to get somebody into a game by saying, uh, if you're trying to invest with me um, and you offer me $100,000, and if I said to you, 
Um, I appreciate that. And I want to help you, but relationships are more important to me. Uh, so why don't we just take $20,000 and see how it rides? And then later on, if that goes well, we can do something else. You would not think that that's a con because we have the narrative that we believe con men would go for the 100000 and try to get more. But they're interested in seeing how many times can they go back and take more and more and more because they need to set the hook deeper. So it, the ability to be able to step back on the situation and question our own desires is really important. Mm -hmm. Actually, what, what I find fascinating is it's, it's actually not about you, right? I mean, if you're entering a room, it's not about you. And I think you said this in the Illusion of Knowledge uh, trailer. It's about us, <laughs> right? It's sort of, we have our worldviews, we have our biases, we have our uh, belief systems and confidence, et cetera. And between the cracks are opportunities for people to exploit. Yeah. And so it has nothing to do with you at some level. Well, and between those cracks, I think those connect the dots. So those cracks or fill in gaps, our need to fill in those gaps is the direct correlation of how vulnerable we are and how we fill them in and how we connect those dots. If something happens at the same time or happens right after the other, those are very seductive patterns. We want to fill in that gap, right? We want to say, this is because of this. And it's, it's a really, because in a, yeah, in that trailer, I mentioned that deception happened. It's not something I do. It happens in your head. And it's just like telling a joke. If I tell you a joke, is it funny? No. You determine if it's funny based on your experiences and what it means to you, how you perceive it. But I can get better at telling jokes just because I have more experience with it. Um, all right, so uh, we're slowly running out of time here, but let's get to some more questions here. So what is a trick or skill that you want, but you haven't yet attained? Or what's the most difficult trick for you to perform? Focus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ironically, I mean, that's, I mean, I have more of a deficit to focus than most average individuals probably. Uh, so the ability for me to have clarity of thought, uh, I have, I move between things pretty fast in the way that I connect patterns to turn that off and use it, it comes with a cost in everyday society. Um, but in relation to if I could acquire a skill, be the ability to organize those thoughts, to have clarity and uh, be able to do the things that most people do, it seems on average to me. Like, what, what do you mean by that? I'm sort of curious. Um, being able to write a series of pages and make those, uh, if I'm speaking to someone, I can track their train of thought and I can be with them and tell them what they need to hear. If I'm trying to write it, I compete with myself a lot. And so then when I start to do that, I'm shifting between it. So the shifting of perspectives works against me sometimes when I'm doing it for myself. Um, so I would like to have the baseline of uh, being able to do that with normal. Now, the way I accomplish that is by having a great team. I have a, a smart team that is able to help correlate my thoughts and say, yes, don't talk yourself out of that one. Let's stay here. And I think that's an important part. But it would be nice to not make my team do the heavy lifting. Yep. No, I appreciate that. I understand. Um, so, Paul, what advice would you give to someone that was trying to get more empathetic, being able to see from other perspectives, being able to put myself in that person's shoes or put myself in this person's shoes to try? Is there a way to develop that skill? Mm -hmm. Moving into domains you're not comfortable with. Um, right now, politically, have dinners with people that have the opposite view of you. Um, and it learned to, the challenge would be how do you create the comfort space for good productive conversations? And that's a win, you know, that, and it's not getting them to change to your viewpoint and not that it changes their viewpoint. It's getting to a space where both of you say, you know, I'm not sure if you guys can get that. So to me, we often avoid the uncomfortable. 
Um, and there's a, a great book. I'm trying to remember the name, but it, it's a walk around the block in New York from like 11 different perspectives, from that of a dog trainer. Walking, what was walking with Strangers, I think. It, it was a new book, right? Is that? Yeah, I think so. Go ahead. Keep going. I'll I think it. It, it's an important part to be able to shift from different perspectives of, because that's the thing I was saying about the truth earlier. The truth from different perspectives is still true. It just has different priorities and different relevance. So it's more important than ever, I think, for us to be able to uh, not just think of it as empathy of whether I emotionally feel what you're feeling, because that's not really what it's about. It's the ability to see the world through different lenses. And I, this is an academic term. I'm just going to toss out this one, but I think it's so important. There's a great word called construal in social psychology, and it's the root word of misconstrued. It's one person's worldview, their construct of the reality. It's really important for us when we look at a situation to understand there are multiple constructs of that same situation. And I think that that's such an important part. Yeah. So for those of you that are listening that have not yet seen my book and will see it, understand that Apollo did not get a chance to read my whole book, but that is literally, I've got chapters on these very topics, wow. multiple perspectives, find people that you disagree with, etc. So I'm thrilled to see the alignment of views here uh, because uh, I can't agree more. I think our country needs it. Uh, you know, helping to mitigate some of the polarization that takes place is to just even hear the perspectives of others. I think we've lost the art of listening, so to say. Uh, yeah. So a big part of empathizing and getting a different perspective. And there's a kind of Socratic, I forgot what it was, the three ways of switching somebody to your point of view. I think it, it you listen to their truth, you say, yes, I thought that, and here's what I learned. But it's kind of like trying to trick them and take high status and move them to look at what I learned. And ironically, it's back to, back to the test point. If you're so focused on getting them to your point of view, you miss their truth. And I think if you just start with another person is a pretty smart individual. How did they come to this belief? And what are the truths that they're considering for that? And I think that's the value, learning how to be able to identify those truths without coming in with the goal of changing their mind. Yeah. So, Paul, have you done any work internationally? And does culture come into play here? Meaning, are certain societies more or less vulnerable, if you will, to being misdirected uh, or to having their focus being mischanneled, if you will? Mm -hmm. Yes. And... Two-part question, yes, I, I, there's a risk mind conference where I came in was speaking about uh, risk assessment as far as individuals and the role of AI and how it affects the industry. And I was speaking to this idea of putting a problem into a black box and being concerned about the answer that comes out. It, to me, it reminds me of the old carnival game where you put all your information into this machine and it gives you your horoscope numbers, some numerology. It's like, yeah, we got the same thing now. I mean, yes, maybe it's more accurate, but what about the data going in? I think... And so I've spoken internationally and there is a, a lot of difference of how people will look at, again, back to how they handle ambiguity. If you go back to uh, World War II, I believe it was with Japan, we believe that some of the deception operations that we projected to Japan, that they weren't understanding it. They weren't receiving the deceptions that we were, we were doing. The problem was there was ambiguity in it and they processed it differently. So we were projecting on them uh, that they should think like we do, but they weren't willing to take that step of uncertainty with the ambiguity. And so we were mirroring under them. And I think that's often the case. We project those narratives and that's why it wasn't working. It was a, a whole culture had prioritized individualism, uh, tribalism and groups different than us. And um, back to an old con man, friend of mine, he said, um, you know, I know you grew up with your dad being a minister, but I think the golden rule is broken. 
I said, why do you say that? He said, well, it says do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, but how do you know that they want that? Uh, you're projecting what you want onto them. Why don't you do unto others as they want done unto themselves? That's what a con man would do. And it's a fascinating thing that one of the lessons on empathy might come from a con man. Sure. No, no, that's, that is fascinating. I agree. Um, so, Apollo, we're running out of time here, but mm -hmm. I want to leave some time for you to share any last thoughts you want to leave with us in terms of how to think about focus, how to think for yourself, obviously, <laughs> et cetera. Uh, but any last thoughts before we wrap up here? Um, yeah, I, I would say there's a, I'm very interested in the idea of critical thinking. Um, what it is. Um, I'm very concerned with words that take fill in a gap and don't get us anywhere. And there are multiple definitions in different contexts of literature or science of what critical thinking might be. But what is the specific thing we would like for society to do? And are there good examples of that happening in mass? Because if we're saying we need, our culture needs more critical thinking, what do we mean by that? And how would that ever happen? And if, if we're asking them to question alternate hypothesis besides what they see, that requires more attention. So how are we going to get them to spend more attention when we already have trouble with attention? So those questions to me as thinking about critical thinking have kind of unfolded now to when are we, what are we asking them to do specifically and how, when should they question those things? And how do questioning our reality not turn into conspiracy theories? To me, I'm very fascinated by a lot of those questions. Yeah, well, I think those are critical questions specifically today. Uh, right. I mean, some of the, the cross currents and noise that we find ourselves drowning in, uh, I think those are absolutely critical questions. So we hope you come up with some answers for us. <laughs> or at least find something to help guide Maybe us. we can play on that together. There you go. We can definitely work on that together. So uh, I just want to take the time to thank you, Apollo. Apollo, thank you for spending the time uh, with us here. Fascinating conversation. I've learned a little bit more here. I will always pick the left, left, then right rings uh, in the hands. I'm going to stick with that. I learned that. That's my confirmed bias at this stage. Uh, but no, seriously. Somebody else. It's fascinating. That's why I shared it with you guys. Do it to somebody else and see what story they project. They'll often tell themselves, here's why, I'm, here's why I won. And it's fascinating to see the reasons why people think they won. Yeah. Well, well, I've got my reason. I think I'm just smart at it. <laughs> but in any case, Thank you so much for your time. Best of luck with the projects. I'm looking forward to keeping in touch and helping in any way possible. For those of you uh, listening, thank you for taking the time to, to join us today for this hour. Uh, there will be a replay. I will put the audio portion uh, onto a podcast as well. And um, of course, next week we have Reince Priebus joining us, uh, former chief of staff for President Trump, as well as chair of the Republican National Committee. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you all then. So again, thank you, everyone. And thanks, Apollo. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. For more information, please do visit Dr. Mantramani's website at www.mansharamani.com or follow him on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. And of course, if you haven't done so already, we encourage you to purchase his book, Think for Yourself, which is available for pre-order on Amazon.